Father, we thank you for this glorious morning. What a morning on this that we get to remember um, the freshness of your Holy Spirit, how it came and enlivened your people, formed your church, and spread the gospel. We believe that same Holy Spirit is moving and active today in our world and in King of Kings. And so we would pray that you would continue to do little versions of Pentecost um, all over this city and this land, um, for we desperately need it, Lord. And we pray that you would do it at King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago, we visited, I, I took my kids to the Uptown Museum called Discovery Place. Maybe some of you have been there. It's a good place. It's a good time. Um, they have the big IMAX theater, but they also have this little theater um, that shows some sort of science films. My kids were younger then. I think it was just two of them at the time. And uh, so we went to see one of these science films. I believe it was on dolphins. But the thing about this film was it was in 3D. And you have to wear the special glasses in order to see it. Well, they didn't want to wear the glasses. No, they were used to seeing the world with their own two eyes. And so they were determined that they were going to watch this movie, not with the glasses, but just by looking at it. Well, have you ever tried to do that? It's blurry the whole time. I mean, it would make me dizzy, but that was what they knew. And so they said, we're going to watch it that way. And it wasn't a very long film, thankfully. It was about 20 minutes or so. But they assumed that that's just the way things were. The blurry dolphins swimming around. Well, this morning and next Sunday, we will wrap up our study in Ephesians that we started back in September. And it's sort of like um, saying goodbye to an old friend. I mean, not goodbye, it'll still be around, but I have very much enjoyed um, studying this book and preaching it. I hope that you have been um, blessed by it as well. One of the main things that Paul offers us in this letter is what Daryl Johnson calls an alternative reading of reality. An alternative reading of reality. You see, most people go through life uh, seeing things in 2D, two dimensions. But what Paul has shown us in Ephesians is that there's actually another dimension of reality. And if we don't learn to see things in 3D, then we won't see our lives very clearly. Things will be quite blurry. But here's the tragic thing. We won't even realize it. We'll conclude that this blurry 2D version of life is just the way it is. Well, back in September, we looked in detail at this phrase, the heavenly places. Maybe some of you were here for that and you remember that. Well, this phrase, the heavenly places, shows up multiple times in the letter of Ephesians. And as we looked at it, it's not just heaven, the, the place where we go when we die. Uh, nor is it the place where God dwells, as if he's up in heaven and, and we're down here on earth. The way Paul uses the word, it's unique, but it refers to something more than just heaven. One way to interpret it might be the invisible dimension of reality. Or sometimes people say the, the spiritual dimension of reality. In order to see life with this 3D clarity, one must come to terms with this spiritual dimension of reality. If we refuse to see things from that perspective, we won't be able to account for all of life. Whether or not we realize it or admit it, life will be blurry. Well, as we went through the letter, we hear a lot of wonderful things that are true in this 
heavenly places, this spiritual dimension of reality. Let me walk through a few of them. Ephesians 1.3, Paul starts the, the book with this wonderful account of blessings, but what he says is that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing where? In the heavenly places. So this spiritual dimension of reality, that's where we're blessed. And if you remember going through, we are profoundly blessed, friends. But to understand what's true about us, we have to see into the invisible, the spiritual dimension of reality. Then he goes on in Ephesians 1.20, he says, Christ is seated at God's right hand, ruling and reigning everything from the heavenly places. Then Ephesians 2.6, we find out we're there too. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And then going forward, he speaks about the church in 3.10, the wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God is being put on display. Where? Through the church in the heavenly places. So these are wonderful things. And each of them we can unpack and realize what that means for us and what that means for God. It puts a whole nother perspective on life. And even when we get down in the circumstances of life and the struggles of life, we can turn and look at the heavenly places and say, here's what's true about God. Here's what's true about me. We ground ourselves in that more enduring reality. But right at the end of his letter, Paul has one more thing to teach us about this other dimension, something very important. It's the last time he'll use this phrase. We come to it beginning in Ephesians 6, verse 10. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And Paul will start the section with this word, finally. Finally. And in one sense, he's just marking his transition to his last point. He's summing things up. He's been writing this letter with lots of different information. And he's going to actually, in the verses that follow, bring up a lot of the themes from the letter and, and then weave them together in this really nice conclusion. But I don't think that's all he's doing. We can also translate this word finally, henceforth, or going forward, or from now on. In many ways, Paul is not simply wrapping up his letter with a nice, neat little bow. Instead, he's saying, this is what you need to be prepared for as you head out into this three-dimensional world. Going forward, this is the way it's going to be, so see things clearly and be ready. And then in the verses that follows, he reveals to us that in addition to all these wonderful blessings that are true in the heavenly places, there's also a great battle going on a struggle, an intense life or death wrestling match. It is waged by the devil, verse 11, and by these other forces that Paul calls the cosmic, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here's the question for us today, friends. Do we want to see life clearly? Do we want to understand and navigate reality as it truly is? Then we must come to terms with the spiritual evil at work in the world, or what Christians often call spiritual warfare. Now, to believe in this is to put ourselves outside the mainstream culture. Our culture is a bit schizophrenic in its approach to spiritual evil. On the one hand, many modern people, informed by this naturalistic worldview, deny there could be any such thing as a devil or demons or spiritual beings. 
That's an old-fashioned idea, we think, and we've moved on from that. We can explain evil in purely natural terms. But can we? Can we really offer a sufficient explanation for the Holocaust in sociological terms, in studying the rise of Hitler? Will that really account for everything? Can we really make sense of the Rwandan genocide by just studying the underlying historical tensions between the Hutus and the Tutsis ethnic groups and then we'll get a whole picture of how and why that happened? Can we really understand why Sandy Hook Elementary School experienced unthinkable violence against children simply by using psychology to diagnose the perpetrator? I don't think we can. I think those things can be part of the explanation, but some of our greatest tragedies beg for a larger explanation. They they point us to this sinister power of evil at work in the world, even if the culture denies it. So on the one hand, our culture dismisses spiritual evil. But on the other hand, we're still obsessed with it. I want you to imagine 500 years from now that some um, historians went back and they wanted to study 2016 when we're living. And, and the way they did that was to look at some of the cultural artifacts that we're producing to understand what we're really thinking about. And what they had at their disposal was um, lots of TV shows and movies. They would conclude that we were a people very consumed with spiritual evil. Looking back a little bit, you have The Exorcist, you have Poltergeist. More recently, you have Twilight, Harry Potter, Once Upon a Time. I hear there's a new show out called Lucifer. Spiritual evil keeps showing up in our collective imagination, in our cultural artifacts. We can't erase it from our memory. Even when we have these naturalistic worldviews, even if our heads deny it, our hearts will not. And so as a culture, we're actually in conflict with ourselves. We're we're confused. We deny that there's a spiritual force of evil. We don't admit that to the conversation, and yet we're still obsessed with it. But to the Christian and to anyone who will listen, Paul says, it's real, and you need to be ready for it. You don't need to be afraid of it, but you need to be ready for it. Ephesians 6 is famous for the armor of God. And we're going to look at that uh, next week. This morning, I want to ask uh, three questions about spiritual warfare by way of introduction. The first question, who is not really our enemy? Who is not really our enemy? Second question, who is our enemy? And third question, how do we resist him? So first, who is not really our enemy? Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, authorities, powers, and so on. Flesh and blood is just another way to say humans. The great struggle of the universe, Paul is showing us, is not actually between human beings. A two-dimensional view of reality says that it is. In 2D, all, all we can see is other human beings. So, Therefore, she must be the problem, or, or he must be the problem, or the liberals, they must be the problem, or the conservatives must be the problem, or no, it's my spouse, he's the problem, or my child, or my boss, and you see how it goes. That's where we struggle in 2D, with, with each other. We actually make each other the enemy. Well, Paul is not denying that there are legitimate conflicts between human beings. 
He's not denying that human beings can really do bad things, can really be part of the problem. And in some sense, yes, they're the enemy. But he's just saying really in a three-dimensional view of reality, there's a larger enemy. And he's at work in every situation. That's where the real struggle is. So think about Paul for a second. He had lots of human enemies. As he wrote this letter, he was in a Roman prison cell. And so he easily could have said, hey, the Romans, those guards out there, they're they're my enemy. Or even more, the the Jews who were jealous of him and opposed his message, they put them in jail, and they're the enemy. But Paul knew better. He knew that the real enemy was this spiritual force of evil. That's where the real battle was happening. As a country, as a culture right now, we are in an intense season of blaming. Our state is suing the federal government. The federal government is suing us. We're in this intense season of of blaming, of pointing fingers. Part of that is this election cycle. Part of that is this rapid change in sexual ethics and norms and the stress that it's putting on our culture. And it's very easy for a Christian to point our finger and say, they're the problem. That group over there, it's their fault. Let's get rid of them somehow. Let's fight against them somehow. And that's how we define the struggle. But Paul is reminding us that's not where the real battle is. There's a deeper struggle happening in the spiritual dimension of reality. And if you want to understand anything, but particularly this this cultural moment that we're in, we have to read it through the view of this spiritual dimension of reality. It's not just against flesh and blood that we're fighting. And so for a Christian, whatever your perspectives are, we need to be ones who who can slow ourselves down a little bit and not just begin to hurl the Molotov cocktail over at the other side, but say, wait a minute, there's another enemy, there's another battle, and how does that inform us as we go forward? That brings us to our second question. Well, who is our real enemy? Paul has shown us a spiritual force of evil. Verse 11, he calls it Diablos, the devil. Verse 12, he gives a longer list, including these rulers, authorities, powers, and so on. The relationship between the devil and these other powers, rulers, authorities, cosmic forces, that thing, it's not spelled out. So perhaps the devil is like the prince, the one really in charge. That's often how we imagine it. And these other beings work for him, but we don't really know. Often at times there's attempts made to to rank the different types of demons, to give a more precise uh, identification. And the reality is that speculation. There's just not a lot we can know in terms of who these forces are and how they operate. But there are some things that we can say with confidence, and I think these are actually the more important things to know about our enemy. These spiritual forces of evil are personal. That is to say, they have their own existence and they have their own intelligence. Some theories have been put forth that these forces that Paul speaks about are not personal, but just an expression of evil embedded in human structures and institutions, societal evil, you might call that. And that certainly appeals more to modern sentiments, but that doesn't make the best sense of the evidence. From what Paul says, from what Jesus says, evil is personal has an existence of its own, it has an intelligence, and most importantly, it has a personal hatred. The devil and his forces of evil are resolutely against God. They hate God. They hate Jesus. 
Some have even pointed out that really it's not even about us. The, the, the hatred is really for God, for Jesus, but since they, they can't touch God, Jesus, then they go after what's precious to God and Jesus, which is us, human beings in general, I would say, but specifically uh, disciples of Christ. So they're personal. Something else we need to know about our enemy, and this is critical, he's not equal to God. He's not equal to God. This is not yin and yang. This is not um, the force and the dark side where the two uh, forces balance each other out. The devil and all other spiritual forces, whatever they are, we know for certain that they are created. That's critical to understand. They are created. (coughs) God created them. Now, he created them good, and, and like us, there was some sort of rebellion, but they remain creatures. And right now, for reasons we don't fully understand, God allows the devil and his forces to operate in the world. But it's completely under the sovereignty of God. God's not struggling with Satan to to beat him and to finally win the day. Satan is absolutely no match for God. Why this is going on in this way, again, we don't fully understand, but I think we're the issue. God is doing things in the way that he's doing them because he wants to save us. He wants to redeem that which he lost. But don't think for a minute because God's kind of taking his time and hasn't completely vanquished Satan that he can't beat him. That would be an incorrect conclusion. If you want to think about, well, who would Satan's equal be, uh, probably the best candidate would be Michael the archangel. That both of them are these created beings with a lot of power, but they're both creatures. None of them are equal to God. So we've seen the spiritual evil. This enemy is it's personal. We've seen that it's no match for God. They're created, whatever they are. Finally, we see that the spiritual forces of evil, they're not earthly powers, but they do work on earth. They do their business on earth. They're beyond this world, and yet they're very involved in the flesh and blood world that we know. They're they're not human institutions and structures, but they do a lot of their work through human institutions and structures. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel's kind of a wacky book to begin with, and then it gets really wacky in the later chapters. We learn um, that the kingdom of Persia, a human institution, a government, we learn that that kingdom has a prince or a ruler, but it's not a human being. It's a spiritual being of evil, and that being is resisting God's purposes. And then gets even more wacky. In comes Michael the archangel, and he actually has to step in and fight off this spiritual being associated with the kingdom of Persia. This is the kind of stuff that's going on behind the scenes. It's really weird in the same way that when you put on 3D glasses, you look really weird, but it actually helps you see clearly. So friends, when we look around at our, at our world, at our city, and we see human institutions and structures like the cultural ones, like multinational corporations, governments, political parties, economic systems, human traditions, religions, yes, even churches, we need to realize that these are a battlefield for the spiritual forces of evil. I think a lot of times when spiritual warfare is talked about in evangelical circles, we think about it simply in terms of personal temptation. And indeed, it is that. But it's more. 
we need to be aware that there's this scheming going on in these larger ways. I think much of the time the devil does his best work through human structures and he's quite content to hide behind the scenes and let us blame each other and fight each other. But all the while he's behind the curtain manipulating these institutions to carry out his plans. But just like it is for us in personal temptation, it's not always easy to see because he is an expert at deception. He makes things appear reasonable and good. He comes as an angel of light and he lies and he lies and he lies. So we might be tempted to look at a political party or a corporation and say, hey, that's just a benign thing. It's not a benign thing. It's a playground for the evil one as is a denomination, as is um, a church. It's, it's all of these things. So our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, true, but it is often being fought through these flesh and blood institutions or structures. So we've seen who our enemy is not. We've seen who our enemy is. Third and final question, how do we resist him? That's really the key question, isn't it? And that's where Paul is going to spend most of his time. He doesn't give us these long lists of explaining how demons relate to each other. What he really wants us to know is it's real, know it's real, but here's how you stand against it. And so Paul is going to tell us a few things in this chapter. He tells us to be strong in the Lord. He tells us to stand, and he tells us to put on the armor of God. All of those are interrelated. Let me say a few things about the first two this morning, and next week we'll look at God's armor. So in verse 10, Paul starts this final section of his letter with these words. Finally, or henceforth, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now on the surface, this seems like a, a fine thing to say. It's a bit cliche, but it's a good thing to say. Hey, just be strong in the Lord. We, we've heard that before. But I would submit to you that in the context of spiritual warfare, it's actually really critical that we slow down and we pay attention to this. Paul isn't telling us to go make ourselves strong. He's saying be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Why? Because we are no match for Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. He is way more powerful than we are. He's way more manipulative than we could ever hope to figure out. He's way more intelligent than we are, and he has a ton more resources at his disposal. My friend Palmer Trice at the Barnabas Center who preached here last summer, he shared the story of this time in college when full of spiritual zeal, he and some of his friends formed this spiritual society. It was called SASAS, the Society to Stamp Out Satan. And Palmer laughs about this now. But a lot of us still try to do the same things in our own strength. We try to resist the lies of the evil one by using our own mental capabilities and figuring things out. We try to beat his temptations by sheer determination. Have you done that? When you said, oh, I messed up again, but I'm gonna do better next time. Are you? We try to take on human institutions. We try to take on evils in society with great zeal and passion. And again, it's not bad that we have these desires, but we need to realize how weak we are. We're no match for Satan. But God is. Remember Satan and Jesus, they're not equals. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are uncreated. They are eternal. They are absolute in their power and sovereignty. 
Satan and his forces are creatures with limited power, only the power that God allows them to have. And so Paul says to begin, be strong, what? In your passion, in your zeal, in your, I'll do better next time. No, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's where the battle starts. That's where we find our strength. Now, what's the first step to being strong in the Lord and his might? What's the first step? Anybody have any guesses? To admit we're weak. To admit we're powerless. That's why Jesus begins his whole Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who know they don't have what it takes. Because when we admit we're powerless, when we admit we need lots of help, it creates this dependency on God. Not this, oh yeah, I did that once at a retreat dependency on him, but this moment by moment dependency on him where we can truly express that song, I need thee, I need thee, every hour I need thee. For the Christian, it is dependency on God that is our source of strength. Not, oh, we start with that and then we move in on our, no, every moment it's dependency on God. We, we think about strength and power as I can do it on my own. The Christian version is completely different. It's this relational view of power where in relationship to God, you have strength, you have power. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's where Paul will start us. Then he goes on, he tells us multiple times to stand. And as you study that, and as you actually study the, uh, the, the type of armor that he describes... He's really advocating for more of a defensive posture than an offensive one. It's really about withstanding an attack than mounting an offense. Again, in our zeal for Jesus, we often want to go fight for him. We see evil in the world, we want to stamp it out. And again, that can be a good desire, but what we do is we resort to doing it in our own strength and by the world's means of power. Think about Peter. Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus went to the cross, they're in the garden, and people come against Jesus. And what does he do? He stands up for Jesus. Good impulse, but how does he do it? He goes on the offensive. He takes his sword. He cuts off someone's ear. Here's the question. Is that going to stop Satan? That didn't stop his plans. I think Satan actually delights in the, the violence and the hatred and the blaming that we stir up when we go on the offensive. He uses it for his purposes. Jesus says to Peter, put it away. Those who live that way will die that way. Live by the sword, die by the sword. And in Matthew's account, Jesus goes on to say, don't you understand? I can do the power thing. I can call down for my father legions of angels and destroy all of this. I actually don't need your help fighting the bad guys. If I wanted to win with that approach to power, I could do it. Now, are we called to stand up for truth? Yes, absolutely. Are we called to expose the works of darkness? Paul tells us earlier in Ephesians that we are to stand up for justice. Yes, those things are true, but the fundamental posture of a Christian and resisting evil, it's not offensive. It's defensive. It's not to advance. It's to stand. Why? Why is it that way? 
There's one reason. And it's the key to really understanding all of spiritual warfare. We stand, we, we have this posture of a defense because the victory has already been won by Jesus. We don't have to advance and win some great battle. We just have to stir, stand firm in the victory that Jesus has already brought about. And he won it in a very different way than we thought. He didn't call down angels to smite the bad guys in the garden. Instead, he said, I have to drink the cup. I have to go to the cross because Jesus knew that's where the victory, not just over the world powers, but against the spiritual powers would be won. We focus often on the cross and we say, that's where our sins were forgiven. Yes, amen, but it's also where Jesus conquered Satan. And different scriptures bear this out. Colossians 2, Paul says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And then Hebrews chapter two, something similar. That through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. On the cross, Jesus utterly humiliated Satan. It was the greatest reversal of all time. Here, Satan thought he would finally pin Jesus down in death. It was his moment. He was going to conquer God. And then all of a sudden, the tables were turned and Satan found himself defeated. And so it's because of that that we find ourselves in a defensive battle primarily because the victory is won. Satan is defeated. Now he still has some power. He's still at work, but he's defeated through Christ's victory. And so in order to resist him, all we have to do is to stand in the victory of Christ. We don't have to achieve anything else. We don't have to go out fighting. And I don't know what that does for you, but as I let that sink in, it's very good news. It gives me a sense of peace as I look at my personal struggles, as I look out in the world and all the struggles that we're in. Jesus has already won the victory. Let's stand on it. Last month, while visiting Paisley's parents in Orlando, we took the kids to the Orlando Eye. I don't know if you've been on one of these eyes, but they're these giant Ferris wheel-like things. And Orlando has a new one. And so we took them uh, to ride on it. But before you get to go on the ride, there's a movie. And this movie was in 3D. Actually, they claimed it was 4D because at one point they spray some water at you. <laughs> this time, my kids wore the glasses and they saw everything in great clarity and they really enjoyed it. Part of our maturity in Christ is learning to see all of life through this spiritual dimension of reality. When we do, things really come into focus. They're not blurry anymore. One of the things that we begin to see is that there's a different kind of battle going on in the world with a different kind of enemy than we had previously imagined. And we resist him in a different kind of way, God's way, by finding our strength in him through dependence and by standing on the victory that Christ has already won. Let's pray.